Were you nervous that you might not be a good director? Oh, I was nervous my whole life about about that. All right, about because uh, I would see I would see movies that I liked, and I wanted my footage to look like that. Great writer once tried to describe what it's like watching Quentin Tarantino watch a movie. Here's what she wrote. His whole face is open to the screen, as though he were receiving communion. Mouth slightly open, eyes wide, fist in a sock, chin pushing forward, large, pale forehead flickering with the film. That's a beautiful image. Is it true? Let's ask Quentin himself. So set the stage for what happens when Quentin Tarantino goes to a movie. Like, where are you sitting? What do you have with you? Do you like to see movies alone? Do you like to see them with somebody else? I like seeing movies with, uh, I like seeing movies by myself and I like seeing them with people. Depending on the theater, I like to sit within the second or the uh, third row towards the front in the middle. Uh, one of the things I do like about, I, I've, I've liked about going to the movies alone ever since I was a kid, unless you have your buddies that sit there too, all right, is I can just make a beeline right towards there. And like, usually if you're on a date, you're like, like, why are we sitting that close? However, when I'm watching one of my movies, uh, one of my movies with an audience, I'm watching the audience as much as I'm watching the movie. So I like kind of sitting back so I can see the audience very clearly. And I can see all the backs of the heads and how they react. And frankly, that's kind of still my attitude when I go to the New Beverly, because I kind of, I'm watching the movie, but I'm also kind of watching how the audience responds to it. So I like sitting somewhere in the back five, five or six rows in the back. So I can just kind of see how the audience is reacting to the film. Because when you program the movie in a way, it is your movie. You are presenting it to them. Especially in a case where it was like my print or something. I took the films, I took it very personal. All right, it was, you know, and if you own a movie, you own a print of a film, it feels like it's your movie. And so I would show these different things and people had to be respectful. And if they didn't, I took it personally. I was actually offended. And the, but consequently, it's like if people really liked the movie and they go, wow, that movie was terrific. You know, my response was, oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> it was like, I, I took credit for it because, well, it was my print. So, and, and I, and I put the whole thing together to show it. So I, I actually felt like they were complimenting me, but I, that's how much ownership I had over the movies and that kind of presentation. Welcome to Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm your host, film critic Amy Nicholson, and this is a three-part podcast miniseries about one of the most personal things Quentin Tarantino does. Every day, at least two times a day, Quentin presents movie lovers in Los Angeles with a movie that feels kind of like his. He programs the entire calendar at the New Beverly Cinema, a theater that you can hear him make an inside joke about in his new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right before his Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, steps into the Mexican restaurant El Coyote for what legend has is her final meal before being murdered by Charles Manson's cult, Quentin has her turn around and notice that the X-rated theater across the street is hosting a movie premiere. Who knew porno movies had premieres? That moment is probably invented history, but... That X-rated theater is real. It became the new Beverly. And that small moment in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is typical Tarantino. It's an in-joke with a lot of layers because teenage Tarantino was an usher at an X-rated theater. I didn't really never cared for 
porno movies. Even I, I, and I was like 16 when I was working in there, lying about my age so I could work there. And I even remember thinking, oh man, I can't believe it. I'm going to work with a movie theater my whole life. And now I work in a movie theater where I don't want to see the movies. And that theater was called The Pussycat. And Pussycat is the name of one of the Manson girls in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And if you look real close when Brad Pitt is cruising the Walk of Fame, Tarantino has rebuilt an exact replica of the Hollywood Boulevard Pussycat Theater. Pick up any tiny detail in a Quentin Tarantino movie and you uncover giant backstories of real history and film lore in his own biography. But Quentin can feel so personally invested in movies he programs at the New Beverly. Could I take five movies he didn't make? Five movies he selected to play at his theater and use them to talk about his life and his career? That's kind of why I had the idea. Go, well, let Amy, I chose them. So let Amy choose, give her, send her a bunch of calendars and let her choose it. So I was kind of curious to see what you would, what you would pick from and what you would choose and how you would make the connections. The five movies I chose cover four decades in Quentin's own life as he goes from being a Tennessee kid transplanted into 1960s L.A. to becoming the most famous young director in the world. You don't need to have seen these five movies to listen along. I will tell you the context that you need to know, but I'm betting you've seen a few. Over these three episodes, Quentin and I are going to talk about Point Blank, Enter the Dragon, Valley Girl, Hollywood Shuffle, the Dairy Girl. Hey, don't and Boogie Nights. No, I think that, no, I, I think it's an interesting collection of films. We're about to begin this strange conversational adventure, but I have two last questions so we can imagine what it's like when Quentin goes to the movies. Are you a popcorn and soda guy? Yeah. Always? Uh, n- not always, always, all right, but uh, uh, I, I wish it weren't the case, but I always feel somewhat, I'm somewhat unsatisfied if I don't have a... a at least one, one, of the, one of the two. And if it's a movie you've never seen before, if this is your first time watching it, what do you want in that moment right before the movie starts? Well, I think the Pauline Kael quote probably sums it up best about like waiting for the lights to go down and then the movie starts and there is that, you know, no one knows what to expect. Is this going to be one of those special times? Is it not going to be one of those special times? Is it going to be a forgettable time? Okay, then let's begin. Point Blank is a 1967 crime neo-noir, a cold, hard, and gorgeous movie that opens with two gunshots. It stars Lee Marvin, an ex-Marine who has a face kind of like a cinder block. During World War II, Lee was awarded a Purple Heart for surviving a machine gun attack. And now, over two decades later, he's also just won an Oscar for the musical Cat Baloo. With his new clout, Lee's decided to make Point Blank, a flick about a killer named Walker who wakes up on an abandoned Alcatraz, bleeding and confused after his wife and partner shoot him when a heist goes wrong. Did it happen? A dream. A dream. Walker's quest for revenge takes him to Los Angeles, and every big plot point that happens next sounds like an ordinary genre thriller. But it's not. First-time director John Borman instead turns this simple story into modern, strange, surreal art. 
a movie so full of memories and ghosts that smart people have made strong arguments that Walker might have died in the first scene. And Point Blank is just his spirit world hallucination. You're a pathetic sight, Walker, from where I'm standing. Chasing shadows. You played out. It's over. You're finished. What would you do with the money if you got it? Wasn't yours in the first place. Why don't you just lie down and die? Point Blank deserved to be a bigger deal. But Bonnie and Clyde hit theaters earlier that same August, and everyone was still talking about that bullet-ridden ending. Everyone, that is, but Quentin Tarantino, I assume. In the summer of 1967, Quentin had just moved from Tennessee to Los Angeles, and he was only four years old. I'm guessing you did not see this when you were four. When did you see it? I probably didn't see it when I was four, but I saw it during a theatrical run. But, yeah, but remember, though, movies play for, could, could play for two years, you know, back then. So, so I don't think I saw it, it in— you were six? Yeah, I think I saw it—I think I saw it in 68. I think I saw it—I didn't see it in 67, but I saw it around 68. I saw it, like, on a double feature. Um, I mean, the only thing I remembered about it back then is I remembered when he yanks the, uh, uh, the sheet off the guy, and, he, and, and, and the guy naked falls off the balcony and, and lands in the street. I remember his little butt, all right, uh, in the street by the car fender. Uh, well, you know, that was memorable. All right. You know, so I remember, I remember, I don't remember anything else about the screening, but I did see Point Blank and I saw it around 68. And I, I was the lower half of the double feature. Why were you going to movies when you were five like that? Oh, because well, my, I had young parents and, and, uh, um, they didn't, uh, they, they took me to the movies all the time. And that's true. I guess when you were four, your mom would have been around 20. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and they were, uh, uh, you know, they took me to move, they took me to movies all the time. And, uh, you know, if they were seeing something really radical, like, I don't know, uh, uh, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein or, or uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song or something like that, uh, then they wouldn't take me. But for the most part, uh, they didn't mind me hanging around. And uh, and I, I liked hanging around with the adults and, 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 and I knew not to mess around. And not, this was not kid time. This was adult time. And... They're going to let you hang around. You can't be asking a bunch of stupid questions. You need to just shut up and be cool and just pay attention. Um, but I, I loved being in adult theaters and hearing how adults reacted to movies when they weren't thinking about a kid paying attention to it. And I loved hearing what they laughed at and what they responded to. And I laughed and I responded to it too, even if I didn't get it, because I was just happy to be part of it, to be part of, uh, be part of the, uh, the conversation. I mean, one thing that I think is so fascinating about Point Blank is – you know, it reminds me a little bit of Reservoir and that here's a film, you can sell it as a, as a genre film. Mm-hmm. And yet within it, John Borman makes his own thing. He mm-hmm. makes this artistic, sometimes psychedelic, mm-hmm. really beautifully shot, kind of crazy film. And, you know, it is Borman's first proper film after he did the Dave Clark the Five, Dave Clark Five movie, yeah. movie. And I wonder, Which I love. <laughs> is there like a freedom or a frisson that you're feeling when you're making your first film and starting your career? Yeah, well, I mean... It's incomparable, all right, to try to say what it's like, especially if you've wanted to do movies for a long time and this has been a, a dream that you thought of having. And then to actually go there and and do it and, and be there uh, is absolutely thrilling. It's also very terrifying because um, probably the single most terrifying thing about wanting to be a director as far as like any other – I mean, if you're, especially if you're coming from it from an artistic point of view um, – 
is you might not be right. You might you might not be good at this job. It actually is a job, and you have to be good at the job. Um, it's hard work, and I don't mean hard work like it was for Da Vinci to get paint on canvas. It's just hard work, and you have to be a bit of a leader. And th there's a lot of things you have to be able to do. Is it the sort of thing that you don't know if you're good at it till you actually yeah. do do it? Yeah. But you have, by then, you have to have so much trust of everybody around you. That's exactly it. You know, you, you don't really know how good you are going to be at it until you've shot for a few days, you know, under a schedule and you didn't go way over schedule. And then you, 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 you worked in the time you were supposed to work and you delivered it. And, the, and, and, you, and that, you can be a leader and that footage was good. Yeah. You know, and you did what you wanted to do. Uh, the time constraints didn't make you just throw out your ideas because you couldn't handle it anymore. And you just had to get it done. Were you nervous that you might not be a good director? Oh, I was nervous my whole life about, about that. All right. About, uh, cause I would see, I would see movies that I liked and I wanted my footage to look like that. And then I'd see, you know, straight to video crappy uh, uh, exploitation movies shot on film that look like crap. And yeah, and uh, uh, I didn't personally know <laughs> how to uh, light it in a way that would make one look better than the other. Uh, I just knew the difference. And um, yeah, so I was really worried about that. I wasn't so much worried by the time it came time to do the movie, though. Partly because I was so trepidatious leading up to it as far as like the different state. I, I, you know, just, I was just a, an expert about everything without having done anything. So I'd heard about people getting through their first movie and I'd heard what that was like. So I'd almost like vicariously experienced through them. And so I was kind of prepared of what to expect. But the thing is, though, when you do your first thing, it is like a dream come true and you keep waiting to wake up from this dream come true. You keep waiting for somebody to tap you on the shoulder and kind of send you to the back of the line. What are you doing here? Get out of here. You don't belong here. And so there was a little bit of that. But the thing is... That makes me think about how we never know if Point Blank is Lee Marvin's dream, if he's dead. Yeah, or if he's just dead on Alcatraz, yeah. Uh, um, the thing is, though, I also think about every step along the way, I was nervous about the unknown. So it was like, okay, now we're going to actually do our first auditions. Oh, wow. Now I'm going to have to deal with the actors. And uh, this is no joke. Now I'm going to actually have my scenes and I'm going to have to get the best out of them and, and find the people. Well, they've all done this a lot before and I haven't done it before. So I was a little nervous. But I ended up being really good at auditions. I was really good directing actors in the room. So I was nervous from not having done it. I did it. The story true, Sam, that... And then I wasn't nervous anymore. I was actually pretty good at it. You actually auditioned for Reservoir Dogs for Tarantino. Two people who auditioned for Reservoir Dogs, by the way, were Tom Waits and Samuel L. Jackson. No, Off that audition? No? Obviously, neither got the job. Here's Samuel L. Jackson telling the story on the Today Show. I actually went in to audition, yeah. and I read with Quentin and Lawrence Bender, the producer, not knowing who they were. I just knew they were really terrible actors. <laughs> and I left there thinking, well, I didn't get this job. They sucked. That's a different take on it. But of course Sam didn't recognize Quentin. Quentin was a nobody video store clerk. He'd actually have to make Reservoir Dogs for people to know who he was. So back to him. Then I cast my actors. Then we were going to have uh, uh, the rehearsal. And now, okay, now I got to run a rehearsal with all these actors, including Harvey Cattell. I've never done that before. I'm a little nervous about it. But then we all got together and everything was fine. And I ended up being quite good at it. And so we did the whole rehearsal. So all the way down the line, 
there was all these new plateaus that I had never done before that I had a little trepidation about. But then I did them and everything was fine. So by the time after doing that four or five, six times in pre-production, by the time I got to the movie, I wasn't nervous anymore. Uh, I got my nervousness out of my system. Also, by that time, I actually knew that, look, I knew this material. When we finished rehearsal, I go, look, I've chewed the rag on this material. The cinematographer may know more about cinematography than I do. The editor may know more about editing than I do. These actors may know more about acting more than I do. But I know about this material more than any of them do. And that gave me a confidence. Hey, thank fucking God we found out in time. You can hear him build that confidence in this raw clip of Quentin acting against Steve Buscemi in rehearsal. Quentin is playing Mr. White. Who do you think the rat is this time, huh? I mean, brown, blue, Eddie... I mean, it could even be Joe, you know I mean? He set this whole show up. Maybe he set it up to set it up. Hey, hold on, buddy boy. Me and Joe go back a long way. I can tell you straight up, Joe had nothing to do with this bullshit. Hey, look, look. I've known Joe since I was a kid, okay? And me to say he definitely didn't do it is ridiculous. All right? I mean, I know I definitely didn't do it because I know what I did or didn't do. But I cannot definitely say that about anybody else because I don't definitely know. I mean, for all I know is you're the rat. For all I know, you're the rat. Yeah, all right, now you're using your fucking head. I mean, here with this film, John Borman had the clout to make this, to make a first film that was so visual, so mm-hmm. wild, so much of his But yet fit into a commercial uh, niche of the time. Exactly. Yeah. And he had that clout in part because of Lee Marvin. And I'd love yeah, to yeah. know who Lee Marvin is to you, was like this mm-hmm. masculine figure, but to Hollywood at that time, mm-hmm. he was huge. I mean, yeah, he yeah. had just won an Oscar for Cat Ballou. Mm-hmm. He had just been in a huge hit with Dirty Dozen. And Lee Marvin gave Borman this gift of saying... Mm-hmm. Do I get creative control to the studios? He asked them, and they were like, surely you get creative control. And he said, good, I give my creative control to Borman. Yeah, yeah, Borman yeah. can do what he wants. Right. That made me think of you, actually, because I remember you saying early on in your career, you knew that you had to be the star. You yeah, had to uh-huh. be the person who had the clout to make your own choices. You had mm-hmm. to be the Lee Marvin and well, also the Borman. Well, but you know, but in many, many ways, in, when it comes to that, Harvey Cattell was that for me. Because the reason the movie got made was because Harvey had, had attached himself to it. That was why Live Entertainment, which was the video arm of Coralco, that's why they even, why Richard Gladstein ran a producing movie, even read the script. He goes, oh, Harvey's attached to it? Well, I'd be interested in doing a movie with Harvey Cattell. And then, uh, and Harvey just backed me 100%. And he was one of the producers. So anytime big questions arose and they fell into Harvey's lap, he was like, well, what does Quentin think? And whatever I said, Harvey backed me 100% on it. That's a gift. There was even a talk about, uh, 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 the final shot, you know, that it just goes in on Harvey. There was like, I think we need something else. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. I think it's we need to break it out, uh, break it out of that one perspective. Uh, and then Harvey goes, well, let me watch it. And so we watch, and he brought a couple of friends with him. Uh, and uh, uh, and then when the thing was over, one of his friends was crying. <laughs> he was wiping his tears after you know Harvey got shot. And then uh, Harvey goes, why are you good? Well, I was. Touching. It was. Uh, that's why I was crying. It was touching. He goes. He goes, gentlemen. I think you have your answer. Leave the film alone. I think Quentin did a job. And then all of a sudden, I get a message on my machine. Quentin, the ending's terrific. You don't have to do shit. <laughs> Quentin shot the final scene of Reservoir Dogs half his life ago, and yeah, it's still terrific. Everyone left in the room is dead or dying, in part because Harvey Keitel trusted the wrong man. He's dying too, and as the cops surround the warehouse, he realizes he has screwed everything up. He can't even talk. He just wails. Reservoir Dogs ends where Point Blank began, with bullets. Put the gun, buddy! Put the gun down! Don't do 
it! Drop the gun, man! Don't drop the gun! Drop the fucking gun! We're gonna fucking blow you away! And the thing about Point Blank is I don't quite love it as much as everybody else does uh, uh, for the simple fact that I love the opening. I love the whole intro. I think it's terrific. Obviously, I think that's terrific. Everybody does. But after that's over, I don't think it really lives up to that opening. I mean, once once Walker burst into the house, all guns blazing, holding on to uh, uh, Angie Dickinson, I don't think the movie ever comes anywhere near to uh, that level of quality again. Well, one of the things I think is really fascinating about Borman and the legacy that he left behind is that he's known as much for his films that have kind of become punchlines as yeah. he is known for his good films. Yeah, yeah. Like Point Blank and like Deliverance. I mean, what do you think about this idea of a filmmaker who you can't always control what your legacy is? Mm-hmm. Well, but I mean, you know, I don't know if that quite applies to him because he was, you know, when when he did his wild movies, they are so wild and so out there. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know how you conceive the big rock Zordot's head floating through the sky without at least thinking that some people might laugh at it. Um, I think it was taken completely by surprise by uh, Exorcist II, the heretic. Uh, but, you know, that's that whole... Uh, uh, there's that line that uh, Pauline Kael said that if you uh, if you watch Exorcist to the Heretic with the sound off, you might think it's a masterpiece. <laughs> Exorcist to the Heretic. Fair point, but the trailer is pretty groovy. wish that one of your films would be a discovered classic kind of at that point blank i think has really ascended in mm-hmm. people's minds since 1967 all your films have been under such scrutiny such mm-hmm. objects of fascination when they come out you haven't had a chance to make a thing that can be discovered later as a, a hidden classic well i don't know if that's necessarily true i mean because the thing about it is look i'm i'm i'm, I'm happy to do without the fiasco all right and then uh, and getting around to people looking at it differently but um Jackie Brown got very passionate reviews, but it was very mixed reviews when it when it came out. You know, there were some people who didn't quite get it, but also it was like they weren't quite sure they got me, frankly, to tell you the truth. And like they were expecting something else. From yeah, you. well, and I can understand if you if if I'm coming off of the phenomena that is Pulp Fiction, that Jackie Brown might seem a little weird as a weird follow up. It doesn't to me. is true. Pulp Fiction was flamboyant and flagrantly tricky. Jackie Brown was smaller and simpler and sweeter. It's a love letter to a middle-aged flight attendant played by Pam Greer, who's trapped between federal agents and the gun dealer that she's been working for. That gun dealer, by the way, is played by Samuel L. Jackson, who went to the Reservoir Dogs premiere and then realized who Quentin Tarantino was and said to him afterwards, you gotta put me in your next movie. And Quentin did, and put him in basically every movie ever since. As for Jackie Brown herself, she's either going to go to jail, get killed, or get her freedom. It's very possible that Ordell's killed somebody. You realize that? Well, I ain't going back to jail. 
night doing that probation thing again. It's been 22 years since Jackie Brown, and at this point in Quentin's career, we know he's the guy who will make whatever he wants to make, from a car movie to a two-part kung fu epic. We know he'll rewrite World War II history and Civil War history, and that he wants to, above everything, make a movie that audiences can't predict. Something else worry you? I always feel like I'm starting over. But two decades ago, when Jackie Brown came out, Quentin was just seen as the talented, loudmouth gun guy. Here's what some critics said about Jackie Brown: They called it "quote ho hum straight to video material, sluggish, boringly linear, the kind of flat, self-exposing dud that fate often keeps in store for the initially overpraised." Quentin had succeeded in making himself the star to the point that reviews talked about <laughs> Quentin, Quentin, Quentin mania. And said that he'd now quote annoyed everybody by showing up everywhere. Didn't exactly set the world on fire, did you, Jackie? <laughs> it wasn't weird on purpose to you. You、uh, weren't trying to give people a little different left hook. No, it was a little. No, it was it, it was different on purpose. It wasn't weird on purpose. It was different on purpose. I mean, it was like.、Uh, um, I mean, normally I'm going to be trying to. I'm going to be coming from、uh, a place where I'm going to try to top myself to one degree or another. But then the success of of of, of Pulp Fiction was such a phenomenon that there's no way I'm going to be able to ever top that, at least as far as the next film is concerned. So I I, I purposely decided to go underneath it and do a, a more personal, basically do a movie that I would do now at this age, but do it then. It's my second movie, and I'm just like 35 or something. And I hear what you're saying because I do think since 1997 we've seen Jackie Brown. Climb the ranks. I think a lot of people point to it as their favorite film. Yeah, and it's like I mean, I mean, I mean, to some degree that like even some like critics who were like, you know, who have who have more or less supported me over the years, you know, were questioning Jackie Brown, and now like they talk about it and they put their hands on their heart and they act out this whole they act out this this whole passion play about how much they love it. Do you、uh, like seeing them change face, or are you sort of like, come on, you should have been there at the time? Uh. uh You like it, but you can't help but feel the other way. <laughs> but it's that kind of movie. I, but I actually, I even knew that then. I actually knew that it's like, you know, when I wrote it, I, I, I thought about it being similar to something like Rio Bravo or something where it's a hangout movie that you would get to know the characters, and then if you did know the characters and you did like the characters, maybe you might watch it every five years, and every five years would be just like you, you're hanging out with Jackie or you're hanging out with Ordell. Want to keep hanging out with Quentin? On the second episode of Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation, we're going to talk to him about two very different movies that he has shown at the New Beverly: Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon and the Martha Coolidge Nick Cage comedy cult classic Valley Girl. I can tell you now, the conversation took a turn I was not expecting. Every boy in school saw Enter the Dragon, except me. In fact, I even heard a kid even say, "Wow, is there any movie that anybody that that more kids have seen more than Enter the Dragon?" And they were like, "No, there's not." Well, except for me. Grab a popcorn and join us for the next episode of Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation. Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation is produced by The Ringer and written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson. Our executive producer is Sean Fennessy, and our senior producer is Bobby Wagner. Theme music by Evan Campbell, and special thanks to Bill Simmons and Juliet Littman.